It's time now for Illinois Innovators, spotlighting the leaders in research, technology, and entrepreneurship from the engineering at Illinois community. Welcome to another edition of Illinois Innovators. I'm your host, Mike Kuhn. Today's guest is Kyle Chandler. He's the founder and CEO of Chief Technologies, a Pennsylvania-based manufacturer and engineering firm of specialized hazard control systems. Chief Technologies builds a variety of fluids handling or large pumping and fire retardant proportioning systems and delivery devices, uh, systems used to target and flow water streams on fires, primarily used in large-scale petrochemical facilities. Kyle, welcome to the program. Thank you. So I guess before we get started, kind of uh, take your career path. You were here in the mid-2000s. Uh, we're a wrestler on campus, but uh, um, um, just talk about your engineering uh, lifestyle here and, and uh, your background since then. Sure. Um, so I uh, you know, went from the University of Illinois uh, from 03 to 06. And uh, I had never seen the university before I got there. I'd actually never been west of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And uh, so the first time I ever saw the Midwest is when I got there for my uh, freshman year. And uh, you know, I majored in mechanical engineering and uh, it was a little bit of a whirlwind uh, along with wrestling, uh, just with the demand schedule, and uh, had every intention of trying to graduate early. And um, over time, you know, I got to, while at the University of Illinois, had a lot of exposure between internships uh, with the steel company, as well as an automotive company. And uh, basically, wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do in mechanical engineering. I just knew that uh, I wanted to uh, be in some type of advanced technology role. And as most mechanical engineers will know, I didn't want to do HVAC. <laughs> so the, after 06, I actually landed a job with a small nanotechnology firm uh, located in Malvern, Pennsylvania, you know, about uh, a half hour west of Philadelphia. And there, uh, we primi primarily focused on working on SBIR contracts uh, in conjunction with universities and so on uh, okay. with customers. You know, with customers like uh, NASA or DARPA. And we primarily focused on uh, basically making uh, complex nanooxides. And it, it was a highly uh, invigorating you know, atmosphere, uh, a lot of development techniques. Uh, I was very, very green. Uh, my, one of my first you know, roles as a mechanical engineer. And, and uh, there I specialized in uh, developing processing systems, cryogenic systems, and uh, uh, ultra-high vacuum uh, systems as well. So uh, basically, my, my, all of my peers were uh, PhD scientists or electrical engineers, mechanical engineers. So I was definitely uh, uh, a guppy in a, in, a, <laughs> in a pond full of sharks. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it came at the speed. It was, it was, uh, it was extremely exciting. Um, uh, the only problem is because we were doing work for the government, uh, with each change of administration, there is a uh, also a change in priorities. And in 2008, uh, it was we were working on a long distance um, uh, life support system for NASA. So uh, it was put on hold, and I had to find another job. So um, I ended up applying uh, to United Technologies, who had a corporate office in Lineville, uh, PA, because my wife. Uh, at the time, I was going to grad school and wanted to stay in the area, mm -hmm. and it was uh, up the street. So, lo and behold, their uh, subsidiary, uh, Kit of Firefighting National Foam, 
uh, gave me a call and uh, I went over there and I had a job you know, the same day <laughs> in, you know, in April 2008. Uh, and from there, I, I basically started to, I, I went into a research and development role developing uh, high volume mobile platforms for firefighting, uh, almost exclusively used for petroleum oil and gas. So our customers were typically like Exxon uh, or uh, BP or, or other large uh, type government agencies and uh, what we call special hazards. And, and just for information for listeners, uh, the fire market's broken down into really three qualifying areas. You have uh, commercial fire protection, which is you know, sprinklers above your head and typical buildings. You have municipal, which is the fire truck that's on the street. And then you have industrial. And industrial is a mixture of all kinds of special hazards, primarily class B, which is liquid fuels like gasoline. Right. And uh, in that avenue, uh, it could also include power plants, uh, weapons depots, you know, naval ships, uh, LNG facilities, you name it. Basically, as we put it, uh, the worst stuff on earth <laughs> you know, when it goes up. And that has a whole different type of application methodology to put the fire out. And um, after a few years there, um, I had grown weary uh, pretty quick. You know, it's uh, of the uh, large corporate lifestyle. So I actually wrote another contract, an SBR contract with my previous employer, the nanotechnology firm uh, for the army. And uh, so I left in April, 2011. And this time we actually happened to be working on a, uh, dry chemical uh, nanodendrite. So basically, uh, think of uh, uh, a weed, you know, a, a seed uh, has a dendritic cells st sticking out, but on like a 20 to 40 nanometer scale. And we were using that to dope uh, a fire retardant uh, uh, material, FM200, which is being used to replace Halon for the uh, Army as well as the rest of the uh, Defense Department. So we actually developed the process to make that uh, in that lab. So I worked there for uh, roughly six, six months, six, 10 months again uh, as an engineering manager. And during that time, uh, a lot of previous customers from my uh, com you know, from Kid of Firefighting had, were calling me about uh, service type things, uh, uh, asking for help because the, at the time the company didn't replace me uh, and they didn't, uh, really make it more, much more investment. They were in the process of, they were recently acquired, so they had uh, closed a manufacturing plant. So uh, I started to provide some consulting solutions and then it sort of dawned upon me that uh, we might want to try to pursue the market. And uh, starting in my basement, <laughs> you know, we uh, wow. started laying out some firefighting equipment and designs. And at the same time, we would sublease space from our suppliers. And that's how Chief Technologies got started. Wow. Yeah. So, so, had you thought of yourself as an entrepreneur up until that point? Yeah. So, uh, surprisingly enough, I started my first company when I was twelve, and um, our my parents, as well as my best friend at the time, uh, his name is Alan Ward, who is a, was an electrical engineer for Northrop Grumman. Now he's a uh, computer scientist for the government. Uh, we were building theater loudspeakers, uh, so high fidelity. Uh, speaker systems, yeah, similar to uh, Brad Wilkins or Avalon. And we had a small manufacturing facility that we opened up in New Jersey. And we actually ran that all the way through uh, college until 
we're basically breaking even, but we liquidated it and uh, went our separate ways. But through that time, you know, from being a 12 year old to at the time, you know, when we graduated, so basically 10 years, we had learned a lot of things, everything from uh, capital appropriation, uh, marketing, uh, doing shows, sales, uh, trying to close deals, website interfacing, uh, some e-commerce. Uh, it was a it was a whirlwind for the two of us, and uh, it was exciting. I mean, it, it as kids we were probably the the biggest the biggest influencer on people, you know, pursuing an entrepreneurship uh, role, you know, or you know taking that chance is parents. You know, parents have to be sort of encouraging of that to take that risk because you're going to fail. Uh, just just admit it, on the first shot. It's likely to fail, um, and even if you are successful, you're going to have a lot of failures along the way. And we did a lot of failing, <laughs> so um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't change, I wouldn't change one memory, uh, mainly because at the time it might have been heartbreaking when we did have failures, but now I would tell, you know, understand that these are great experiences. So I knew that I wanted to do another engineering firm, uh, uh, but I knew that the the thing that had to change was. You had to build something that people needed because no one needed high fidelity speakers. It was a, uh, a definitely a, a product for ultra wealthy that you know didn't necessarily need it. Um, it was a fr- you know, fringe product, and so you had to build something that someone needed and uh, and have a, a, a market that you could actually penetrate. So the firefighting just happened to be that I had had been in the industry for a little while, so it made sense. It, I actually had started Chief Technologies as Chief Motorcycle, and I was building uh, race components uh, for my motorcycle. And I had a track accident, and that uh, that basically stopped that process for a little bit. So yeah, it was it was definitely going to be continuous, and I was finding limits everywhere. So the firefighting just really the customers came to me first, and then we've we managed to put it together and and uh, get the company started. Well, that's one way, I guess, to, to know you have a market. If you've got people that uh, are asking for things that you can provide, you know that there's a market out there. Right. Yeah, I'd always encourage people that whatever you do, you know, try different jobs. You know, you have to really explore it and never burn a bridge. Or, I mean, sometimes you're going to do it by accident, but uh, especially if you're outspoken like I am. But uh, try not to burn them because a lot of people – you know, they move around, they look about, you know, everyone's looking for opportunities. And if you can provide value, uh, there's always a door that will open for you. So um, that, that, that's always a big thing to take, take with you from job to job. Well, uh, one of the big reasons we want to try to have you on is, you know, touching on uh, the firefighting industry, uh, I guess, from, from the outside, you know, you see fire trucks that go down uh, the street or whatever, fight fires. It doesn't seem like there's a lot has changed over the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, how, how do you see it? Yeah, well, the within the industry, it's the same type of problem. Uh, we always have a saying here, well, we've been doing it for 40 years and it's worked. The, the issue that's really developed over time is that uh, you'll see uh, there's a big thing now about decon, decontamination. So, Back in the day, no one decontaminated. You know, it's after you fought a fire, whatever, you might throw your, your gear in a wash, but really you, did, you didn't do it. Now they have cancer studies associated with it. So now after every single you know, uh, evolution or, or you know, structural fire, these guys are going through decontamination to wash their suits uh, just to protect them. The same you know, thing applies to equipment. Uh, lifespan of equipment, trying to get 
more out of your capital expenditures as a customer, like a large refinery, uh, new environments where they're exploring. Like if you go to the Middle East and Southeast Asia, you know, they don't have the infrastructure that the United States has. So they rely on mobile equipment. And one issue is that to, to basically make oil more profitable, you got to basically move more of it and you have to store more of it. And the current fixed systems that have been installed over the past 50 years aren't capable of keeping up with that you know, rise in storage. Mm -hmm. So what do you do? Uh, you build bigger and bigger mobile equipment. You know, basically when, you know, things SOL, you know, you're, you know, the, uh, 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 you know, the refineries up in, you know, up in flames, they're relying on backup systems to basically go after that. Um, so that's, that's one issue that has driven the development of extremely high flow systems, you know, moving a ton of water where you have 10, 12,000 gallons a minute, where a typical uh, fire truck on the street in your you know, local town might be 1,500 to 2,000 know, gallons a minute. So, and you might have two or three of those systems in parallel. So you know, you'll have 24, 30,000 GPM plus firing onto a tank. And some of these tanks might be 300 feet in diameter or more and 60 feet tall, full of fuel. So it's a pretty scary proposition when you get to that size. Um, another issue is the fact that you know, firefighting in general is not considered a value added uh, profession. Uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, it's almost like a doctor, you're, you're, you're treating a problem. But from a perspective of an industry, it doesn't make you money. It protects you. But if you look at the long, you know, the, you know, the long view that it, you know, does lower the risk, it lowers the hazards and insurance, but there's still a reduction in manpower over time. Everyone of every type of industry, car manufacturing, as well as firefighting, you know, and petroleum industry, they want to reduce manpower. So as we reduce manpower, we have had to adapt, you know, and bringing in new types of technology like automation. So, what people don't see is that, you know, if you watch the movie Backdraft, it looks like the same as it is now. But the difference is that there is uh, preventive maintenance technology packages installed in these fire trucks. There is uh, system-wide management. There, like for us, we build uh, fully automated remote control systems. So a single person can control 10, 20 pumps all at once. Um, we have, you know, a lot of these type of systems might be deployed over a three to five mile length. You can have one and two people who can oversee that when in the past it might have been 40 to 50 people. So the labor rate drops. So these things are important to consider over time. And then the other part is the exposure to the hazard. You know, being at the other end as a delivery device is a very dangerous task, especially if there's a boil over um, or, or uh, a, a believe, a, a boiling liquid expa uh, expanding vapor explosion, which would essentially vaporize the fireman. And what they've been trying to do is make those automated or remote systems. So they're deployed, firemen pull back, and then they you know, control it through a system of cameras, uh, drones, they might be doing an oversight. So the technology has changed, but it takes time. And, you know, the, and the last piece is change in materials. So when we're on a truck, uh, we're moving trailers around, uh, or or actually deploying uh, along a, a shoreline or, or in, there's, there's corrosion problems, there's weight issues. So what we started doing is changing the materials of, of construction into composites. And it's taken some time for, you know, th this is very typical for process facilities because they pump acids or uh, other types of slurry uh, mixtures. But for firefighting, they're used to steel, cast iron, stainless steel, aluminum, bronze. Yeah, the the basics, 
Uh, and there's nothing wrong with those, but when you're ex uh, exposed to high chlorinated waters, uh, you know, you really have to you know, push the boundary how long this, the, these systems are going to last, especially with the maintenance going down. So those subtle changes people don't get to see, but they are happening and it, it's a big business. You know, there's, there's a lot of moving parts going on and uh, it's, it's very important to try to stay out in front and be a technology leader at the time uh, as, as these refineries as well as uh, even municipalities struggle to stay in front of the hazard, uh, which is continually growing. So you mentioned that um, there were outside people that you had used to work with um, were coming to you for um, problem solving. You know, what were some of those issues that they were trying to solve? And, and uh, at that Well, uh, yeah, so some issues, is, uh, they might be, for instance, uh, um, this will, I'm sure plenty of engineers in school will notice this. Back in the day, there, had a lot to be, there used to be a lot more hands-on. and one of the problems uh, with a lot of green engineers going into industry right now and, and working for large companies is they don't have the opportunity to work with their hands. And I, I really testify to that because the position I was in, and I'm very thankful for, is that, and, and all the companies I worked for, that I was responsible for design, but also to start production, commissioning, and training with the customer. So I had a, a full breadth of, of engineering experience as well as the uh, I would say the sales experience to have, you know, to know what to do. And I was being called on those type of situations. It could have been a deployment problem. It could have been a failed hydraulic component. And I could actually walk them through how to change that. It could be a programming issue on the control system. I could walk them through that and having those resources and touching a, a lot of things of the product, you can sort of guide them through that process and any customer uh, or, or peer will call, the person that can give them the answers. And that's what they're looking for. They're not looking for uh, a lot of BS and, and sales tactics. They're looking for answers. And at the time, I just had, happened to have the answers. And I also, my, they also happened to have my cell phone number. So it worked out <laughs> serendipitously. So um, that's, that's how I found myself in this industry. So you know, talk about the, because I'm fascinated by the, uh, the, the different types of pumps that, that, you, uh, that you offer. Um, and, and some of them say, you know, for municipalities or for industries, do, do industries actually uh, purchase pumps they have on site or, you know, or are they mobile? Sure. So, so municipality, um, so let's just say a, a municipal fire department, it typically sticks with uh, fire trucks like fire pumpers. And uh, it's some, sometimes, like the product we just released over this past winter, the, the Otter system, which is a remote uh, source pump. Uh, they might purchase something like that. So let me first describe our three different types of, of pumps and what they right. are. Yeah. So so our, our first series is a boost pump, and that's just like a fire truck. A boost pump, all it's trying to do is take incoming pressure, you know, in incoming water, and increase the pressure you know, with a centrifugal impeller. And as you know, as uh, water's coming in, it adds energy, energy to it, pressure goes up. It does not increase flow. It's just what's going through it. And that can be uh, through a fire truck, that can be in a mobile pump that has a uh, suction side on the rear or, or, or side, or it could be a fixed installation that you'd find inside of a, a, a like a large skyscraper for sprinklers. You know, they're, they're all, they all count as boost pumps. And then we have pumps that uh, we call floating source pumps. So floating source pumps are, are 
uh, essentially the same thing. They're centrifugal pumps, but instead they're actually in the water source them, itself. And the reason why you would do this is that uh, one of the difficulties with boost pumps, if they're deployed in a uh, non-fixed installation, they have to draft or siphon the water from the water source. And that's limited. As you can imagine, uh, atmospheric pressure, one atmosphere, is equivalent to about 34 feet. And you know, I have, with losses and pump efficiencies, you can really about 10 or 15 feet is all you can really siphon from the water surface into a, 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 an eye of an impeller of, a, of a, a boost pump before it starts to vaporize the water, which is a problem. So once the water starts to vaporize, it's, it's boiling and the pump starts to cavitate. When it cavitates, it destroys the impeller and the piece of equipment is rendered useless. So a floating source pump gets over that problem by the pump's actually inside the water, it's submerged. And the trick is, how do I get power to it? You know, you don't want to take a whole diesel power unit and drive it into the water, uh, although you can do that with boats. So you need this to be deployable very quickly. And what we do is actually have a hydraulic power system. So we have a hydraulic, uh, we have a full diesel power unit on shore, um, and it's connected to a hydraulic uh, pump, which is actually variable displacement, so we can change speed. And that's connected to a hydraulic motor through hydraulic lines into the water. And before anyone asks, why don't you use you know, electric motors? The power density for a hydro hydraulic motor is much, much higher than an electric motor, and also weighs a lot less. Um, the efficiency is higher on an electric motor, but you know, it's a give and take relationship. If you can't get in the water, you can't get in the water. And these systems can be built, boost pumps as well as flowing source pumps, up to 20,000 GPM, huge, you know, or even, even bigger. And then the last type of, you know, you know, we, we might build something, what we call a hybrid unit. It's not you know, a fuel cell or electric. It just means that we took a boost pump and a flowing source pump and put them in the same box. <laughs> it's just an easy way of doing it. And the reason why you would do that is that the flowing source pump is typically not designed to do high pressure. It's just mainly to do high flow so I can get access to that remote water, you know, a pond, a lake, a river, you know, uh, shore, a shoreline. And it pushes the water up, over, you know, up a hill of some sort into the boost pump where that engine basically increases the pressure to send the water downstream to another device. And so industry, the primary users of these type of, uh, this type of equipment, typically has fixed assets installed into the ground, like vertical turbine pumps, um, which you know, are pretty neat. They have to remain flooded, but they have to have backup systems. And a lot of times those are antiquated and they, you know, they either fail or they're just not up to the task of a major fire. So they'd have these mobile pumps on trailer-based systems. They might have them on uh, roll-on, roll-off truck-mounted systems that basically come off similar to like a, a dumpster truck. And they also might have the floating source pumps as well. The, you know, one of the major benefits of the floating source pumps are the fact that you know, with change of tides or very difficult access water, and the reason why it might be difficult is it might be over a bridge deployment. So like I said, more than 10 to 15 feet you know, beyond the siphon, you can't do anything. Otherwise, you have to put the you know, pump in the water. And the other issue is that uh, land you know, or ground near water tends to be soggy, uh, and fire trucks are 40, 50,000 pound vehicles. So they sink. So refineries have to basically be able to uh, maneuver around these type of situations. And that's where these systems come into play. Okay. Talk about your uh, portable floating hydrant. Yes, yeah, so the portable floating hydrant, the Otter system. And so the Otter pump is a, it's one of our floating source pump uh, concepts that you know, we build bigger ones. That we understood that the municipal market, as well as a lot of users, don't need a five, six, seven thousand GPM pump. 
a lot of times this need two to you know 2500 gpm which is uh you know can match the typical pumpers the biggest pumpers on the municipal road and the auto pump is the world's smallest uh hydraulically driven floating source pump it actually fits in the back of a pickup truck and the neat thing about it is uh other than providing 2000 gpm at roughly 40, 40, you know, 44 PSI or, or 1000 GPM at uh, almost 90 PSI, it acts like a hydrant. So if I'm in a rural area or I'm in a you know, major uh, catastrophe, like you know, Hurricane Sandy hits New York City, I lose my hydrants. Uh, I don't have access to, you know, there's, the pump stations are knocked out. I might have flooded infrastructure. So what do I do now? In those type of situations, if I, one, don't have hydrants for pressurized water and I can't siphon and I'm not near a water source, I have to deploy a unit like this uh, so they can provide me water to, to mitigate fire hazards. What, what and, do we use as a water source though? So, uh, what, oh, what we use as a water source? So we can use anything from like ponds, uh, large lakes, any, anything that's open, you know, meaning that it's not covered and, uh, and is more than 20 inches deep. There you go, you have a water source. Okay. So, the, the otter pump itself, uh, the pump that actually deploys in the water is only 85 pounds. The closest competitor in the world is, is about 300, 400 pounds for the same flow. And what's unique about the, the otter and really what's unique about the entire manufacturing process is that it's one of the few products in the whole planet that is a open core uh, structural composite uh, casing. So a lot of composites like Monoc frames uh, you see in like, you know, Formula One race car has a consumable core, meaning that they use prepreg and wrap a body and then they, you know, go through an autoclave process and, and whatnot. And there you go. It's a solid piece and you don't pressurize it. Uh, in our case, we actually don't, can't use a consumable core. We have to make a, uh, basically almost like a flower petal arrangement to make a composite, you know, casing piece while the core has to be removable. And uh, this way we can actually make a solid pump. Now, it's, it's a little tricky. It took about three or four years to perfect. Uh, now we actually can do it pretty well. It's a, um, but it reduces the weight roughly about 80% compared to a typical metal pump, but with strengths comparable to steel. And that's a tremendous you know, uh, improvement over existing technology. At the same time, it doesn't corrode. You know, we, we combine carbon fiber and glass uh, to get the optimal properties that what we're looking for. The other benefit of the otter is that if I do have you know flooded infrastructure, uh, such as a subway tunnel um, or you know other you know steam tunnels, those type of things, the only way to uh, pull water out of those situations is to try to uh, really back a a unit you know into a an access corridor, which usually doesn't exist. And you know in New York City alone, the subway system has roughly 700 pumps that operate all the time on a sunny day, pumping more than 10 million gallons of water out each day. So when it's flooded, it's really flooded. But a pump of that size, which actually has integrated handles, you can actually walk down the stairs and throw it in. It's you know one, two firemen, uh, or any type of you know uh, personnel, emergency personnel can deploy it by hand. So that's really the benefits there, is it, it basically gives rural firefighters an access point for water You know at, at at typical hydrant pressures, but also gives emergency responders like FEMA a way to deflood uh, flooded infrastructure that's critical to keep a city operating. Um, and then third, it can be used by refineries as backup water source. So, but all in a compact size. So you, oftentimes you just think of this as a fire prevention or fire fighting equipment, but uh, it has other uses as well. 
yes, it, it's very important. You know, if you look at companies like Xylem uh, or Pioneer, who's owned by Franklin Electric, um, you know, most pumps, I would say the majority of pumps that are mobile-based are used in uh, construction and, you know, for uh, pumping out foundations or when they lay pipelines. Uh, it's a continuous process or, or in mining, you know, you have to pump out slurries. And the, when your product can hit more parallel industries, the better, you know, you have because a lot of industries go through cycles and it's important to try to capture value at different cycle, you know, uh, apexes. So, um, that's, that's, that's the best thing you can do as a business. And that's what we're trying to do as well is, is try to have the unit being used and not just firefighting and emergency response, but also in, in commercial operations, just, uh, to, so they can get the job done. Well, speaking of value, I mean, obviously you're talking about, uh, what for most people consider, uh, you know, a public, service um you know the municipal firefighters so obviously you have to you're dealing with uh with people that are interested in how much things cost to the value you get out of it so you know how do you balance that as you're talking to to clients many of which i would guess would be municipalities but obviously not exclusively sure um yeah and that's really important you said exclusively because some municipalities um are hybrid you know hybrid uh, type departments where they would address industrial and municipal needs because of they're located at a port, for instance, like the port of Norfolk. Uh, they're protecting houses and tanks. Um, yeah, so balancing that issue, especially with a a customer base that's tax based, um, meaning that yeah, that's that's where their funds, primary funds, come from. They have a very tight uh, procurement schedule and how they you know how they buy things. And you know, a typical fire truck, you know, a pumper. It could run anywhere from on the cheap end about five hundred thousand dollars to some super duper pumpers that you might buy in industrial. That's one point four million dollars, and uh, it's a humongous investment. So what did we try to do? We tried to knock, you know, with the Otter specifically, uh, knock eighty, you know, seventy, eighty percent off that price tag, and to solve a problem they can't solve. Uh, even with a tanker unit, that might be two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars. So you want to, you need to add. You know, there's four things you need to give that customer. You need to be able to solve their price problem. You know, you need to be able to solve, you know, you know, that's the value. The technology problem, the delivery problem, and the service problem. So you have to have a price that's amicable, you know, that fits their budget. You have to have technology that actually, you know, um, it doesn't have to necessarily be groundbreaking, but, you know, actually gets it done. And you have to be able to deliver it in a reasonable time. You know, if, you, if they have to wait a year to get it, that's not going to work, you know. Uh, a lot of these customers expect anywhere from eight weeks to a couple of months and service, you know, that we've been trying to standardize our systems and maintain a spare parts uh, inventory. People take that for granted. You know, if you imagine if you had to, if you had a problem with your car and you had to sit there for two or three months to get parts, um, you, you might set fire to the dealership, <laughs> but in our, in our case, that's a typical accepted thing in, in the industry. So, we try to improve that situation so we can get parts out in days and uh, as well as try to partner with companies that we know would have the uh, technical know-how to fix it. Uh, that way we don't have to worry about a uh, huge scaling factor of our company. Right. And once you meet all those four requirements, uh, most cu- customers will come around. Uh, they might take some time to budget it appropriately. And another thing we work with is municipal financing. So uh, the U S you know, government does assist many fire departments in purchasing equipment that is a, a, a need. 
um, either through grants or, or very low uh, rate finance loans. And we provide both those type of things. We even write the grants for the fire departments. Uh, we found out that the only way it's going to get done is if you do it yourself. And you have to sort of walk it through them. Right. And, and the last thing we do is we use what we call uh, really what we call fire chief friends, you know, a- advocates of the company that have either purchased our products or taken a chance on us. And we have them talk to the customer and help them through the process of acquiring our equipment or just uh, helping us uh, negotiate with the customer because it, it means something to have the customer talk to the customer. It's it's worth much more. Like if you get a refer, you know, a reference from somebody else, like this guy's a great carpenter, is great handyman, or this is a great mechanic, you're gonna go with that guy because you've had a friend uh, speak on his behalf. Yeah. So we we have to employ the same the same tactic, and that's that's applicable everywhere. You know, that's every industry has that same type of you know uh, business type. Well, you'd mentioned that uh, you had worked with a lot of SBIR projects, primi- primarily with uh, uh, the Army and some other. So just talk in that realm of, of uh, SBIR grants, obviously help in research. And you know, how, how do you see the industry changing? And you know, what, sort of, uh, what sort of research is going on in the industry? Right. So w- one big thing that's always discussed is um, – yeah, you know, in the in the news, they always talk about uh, China subsidizing certain industries like steel, and uh, rather than really putting that money into uh, maybe like what we was called SBIR contract, and I, I look at SBIR is as a as a, a federally funded method of subsidizing research of commercial value, meaning that the government gets what they want. And then hopefully it can be commercialized so that business can basically grow. Yeah. It's really a, a phenomenal thing. And I, I, you know, I hope that that continues forward, like, you know, the NSF or as well as DOD and, and other types of research organizations. Well, I can speak and, from people here at the, at the U of I, they take advantage of it. I mean, oh, of course, you know, it's, it, it's, uh, it's, it's phenomenal. Um, program, which is kind of the, you know, the, the program that's right before SBIR, uh, you know, we have a lot of things that are going on at the university. Right. And yeah, and it's, and I think Illinois is one of the maybe top five, top 10, um, you know, resource organization, you know, uh, universities for cashing those type of grants. And one of the important things is I, I would say the industry is, uh, it was, I, I know when I was doing it, it was difficult um, because I was working as a commercial entity. One thing is that some contractors let's say lockheed martin that is their business is it doing those type of you know it's not sbir you know they're not small but it's a government contractor that's that's their business while some other smaller companies uh they're using that as a springboard to go something commercially and i would say from the industry perspective i was, a, a lot of companies seem to be trying to follow like a mini lockheed model we're just going to be a government contractor each time when i think sometimes uh, you know startups a lot of startups can come from these type of technologies and people need to keep that type of focus. And I, and I really hope they do because it's, it, it's a tremendous opportunity. It, I know it's taxpayer funded and, and I, and I am more than happy to pay my taxes that go to these type, these type of things because it's giving engineers and scientists a, a really good jump start on things that have real world implications. And, um, you know, one of the, one of the most, um, prideful jobs I ever had was working with NASA uh, and that was through SBIR. 
and um, you felt like you were working on something awesome, even though you're a, a subcontractor, you're talking to Johnson Space Center and they're going through tests and you're like, man, we're really trying to make humans go forward. And uh, even when you, you know, you're working with ARPA or the DOD, uh, it's, it's not all weapons. You know, it, there's a lot of other things going on uh, from life support systems to fire suppression systems like I worked on at the time. So that it's been a little while. The only, only problem I ever had with those type of contracts is that uh, sometimes the payment schedule and the accounting system is a little bureaucratic with the government, <laughs> which was a big struggle. Um, so having someone who knows how to navigate that, um, you know, that's, that's very important on the business side. And, um, but you know, like I said, I, I, I really, that, that jump started my career. It also, because I got to touch so many things, it is now imprinted on my head that, um, you almost have to stay like staying ahead of technology, you know, getting your hands on a lot of different things to become educated. And that's, uh, so that's, that's where I see the industry right now. It's, it, I'm not, I'm not sure where, where people are with, uh, where a lot of the money is going right now in terms of uh, the allocation from the government. But I know there was a bit of a renewed interest in you know, space and so on. And uh, so hopefully there's a lot more towards that route, uh, but there's everything from bioengineering and, and whatnot. And obviously it's per contractor or per, you know, professor and what they're going to pursue. And it's usually going to be in their field of study. So, but there's so many opportunities uh, it's, it's almost endless. So, so what are the things as it relates to the firefighting industry that you see research and, and advances? So one, I would say that probably the biggest um, research areas is chemical based. So uh, there's, there's chemical and then you have uh, the other side is really maybe materials and artificial intelligence. So the chemical side is how can we put out fires without contaminating the environment with the chemical we use to put out the fire? Right. And there's a big fight between the two where, you know, uh, the, the fire itself burning is not as bad as the chemical you're going to put on it to put it out. And it's you know, all about PFOS and PFOA, which is, you know, uh, floor surfactants because they uh, reside in the ground for, uh, you know, I'm not sure how long, but continuously and they get absorbed in the bloodstream and not really sure of the effects they consider a carcinogen. And these type of problems, even with dry chem type systems, there's a big focus on that to try to improve that uh, using everything from uh, less ozone depleting uh, clean agents as well as foam fire retardant, you know, fluorine free. And contrary to popular belief, even though it's fluorine free, it's still dangerous. It's asphyxiating. You know, if it, if it gets into a water stream, say goodbye to the fish. So uh, in about 30, 40 days, it it's returns to normal. But there's a problem with that as well. Right. So there's a lot of research on that side um, and also reducing the costs associated with firefighting. And then on the artificial intelligence, it's how can we analyze the data to see the risk ahead of time? And you can, right now you have people who are basically surveying that type of problem where they look at the class of structures, they look at well water resources and those type of things. But there really has to be almost like the internet of things, a level of information because there's just so much infrastructure being put in to tra track all the type of information and how to react. And, and the last part is materials advancements, uh, reducing those type of costs, getting more out of the product. Uh, and I know on our side, because we use composites, trying to make them recyclable. <laughs> That's a, uh, everyone talks about how great it is to have a carbon fiber body, this or that. Uh, good luck trying to chop it up and use it again. So, uh, 
Yeah. So yeah, it's it's a it's something that has to be solved. It, it's very difficult to use a thermo ba uh, thermoplastic based matrix um, because the viscosity is too high to get it into uh, a complex molding system. And uh, there's actually people who are looking at polymerization in the mold, but yeah, it's it's tricky because um, thermosets. Uh, the only thing you can really do is cut them up and grind them up and to make them into filler. Other than that, they're not really not really great as a product uh, if they don't have a use anymore. So, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just in that in that uh, in that regard, I, I just those are the big changes going on um, in in fire suppression in particular, and they, and they really are pressing issues. Um, heck, I mean, it's it's still a problem getting sprinklers into people's homes. <laughs> so, just lowering the fire damage. Yet the the U.S. spends roughly four hundred billion dollars a year on fire related uh, investment and damage, you know, annually, and that includes training as well as fire losses, uh, insurance, all those type of things. So, uh, before you know, most people say it'll never happen to me until they have a kitchen fire, and um, heck, I had a kitchen fire at University of Illinois, <laughs> where. Uh, my uh, friend was frying spam and he caused a grease fire. So, uh, and uh, I went to go get baking soda. He threw water on it. I was like, unbelievable. <laughs> so, but uh, speaking of that, and my my next question was just on prevention. And you do a little bit of consulting work and things like that. So, to me, you know, much the same as healthcare, there is the uh, a big push to to not only have to worry about treating, uh, but what how, how do we prevent so do you find that there's a lot of movement that way? Yes. Uh, so building industry is probably your number one uh, issue. Uh, it, it, you know, the petroleum industry has its own own thing going on, uh, the right way to protect it. But let's just look at the fire requirement, you know, uh, fire prevention requirements of typical cities. So how we build homes. You know, right now it's typically class A structures, you know, a lot of wood. Uh, the, the U.S. is full of timber. And the issue with that is um, – you know, wood likes to burn. We we wrap our houses in vinyl. Um, we have a lot of polyester inside of our houses. Uh, a lot of cheap materials, and uh, once it goes, it's pretty quick. So obviously, the first thing is, you know, everyone make sure your smoke detectors work. Um, in firefighting, we always have to say that, uh, and you should. Uh, but check those type of things. But be proactive. Uh, one of the issues in the U.S. in general, as most uh, foreign companies know, the American dollar. Uh, is cherished by Americans. You know, they don't. They want to spend as little as possible. You know, Amazon has a business for that reason. They want to be convenient, and homes are no different. And what people are paying for of these rising home prices is not for the construction materials, but they're paying for the location only. And that's one of the problems. And uh, and, and additionally, if you build homes right next to each other, um, and you don't look at uh, firewall type of, you know, in, you know, construction uh, appropriately, or you, you have composite I-beams, which if they catch fire or they actually are exposed to heat, uh, the binders that are holding the fibers together fail, so a fireman can actually collapse their force. So structural lumber is a little better. So there's, there's small changes, you know, 10, 20% you could add to the cost of a home that can improve the, uh, the resistance to fire. Uh, also, you know, including sprinklers or at least having extinguishers in homes. So really, I, I think most of the thing is, can we build a better home? And, and at the minimum, educating people, you know, actually showing them how to use a fire extinguisher, uh, community outreach, go visit your fire department. 
Uh, and I think there has been a big push about that. There's a huge problem with volunteers. Uh, it's hard to get volunteers now. Uh, a lot of people have busy lives. Um, you know, Instagram takes a lot of time up. So it's, uh, you know, it's hard to get people out there uh, to, to volunteer for the fire department. The least they can do is try to learn ways to mitigate hazards um, and, and even go through fire drills. You know, I have, I have three sons. They understand how to get out of the house. And, um, you know, these are small changes. And it, it, it's really a, a mindset. And, if, you know, if you go to Europe, a lot of the homes are built out of durable materials like stone because they don't have enough wood. And it's just, it is a product of the market. So we could, we could stand to make some changes like that to, to make some improvements. And uh, I'm not telling people to throw all their stuff out. I mean, just try to have a little bit more um, introspect about what you're putting in your home. So and then I want to wrap up this way. Uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about just from a business standpoint, you know, how uh, mentioned when you, as an entrepreneur, you're going to fail the first few times. Just talk about why this has succeeded and, you know, some of the trials of just getting a business up and, and going. Sure. Um, so there's obviously you have business. The consulting is probably the smallest investment required uh, simply because if you're the consultant, um, uh, you know, there's not too much expenditure, uh, especially on equipment. There, there is none. But uh, in our business, because it's manufacturing, there's huge capital expenditures. And one of the difficulties getting the company started was how, you know, first of all, scoring a contract um, without having uh, previous build experience under the company's name. You know, obviously, we may know how to build, but we can't reference a previous company's technology. Sure. We have to show our own. So uh, industrial art and design uh, comes a long way. Uh, doing renderings and doing the build prints, those type of things, and walking the customer through that and really giving them a huge discount just to give the chance. Um, but of course, you know, having the, the capital expenditures to basically buy, let's say we're building a 6,000 GPM pump, uh, it's a $70,000 plus engine that goes on there. And just starting off, is it's very difficult to uh, navigate that. So a lot of customers were in the beginning open to, um, payment plans that helped us get through that. I mortgaged everything. Um, my wife wanted to hang me. She still does. Uh, I get home, I get my ear full. And, um, but uh, you have to be willing to take some risk. And, and then also you have to develop a banking relationship. Uh, that's easier said than done. Uh, for me, I was notorious for being somewhat uh, reclusive and abrasive. Um, I'm an engineer after all, you know, like being in a cave and, you know, designing products. So, you know, shine up your shoes and putting your sport coat on goes a long way. You go to meet with a bank and, uh, and being, and the other thing is I say it would be tremendously important is that you need to understand other business concepts, accounting, you know, financial planning, cash flow analysis, those type of things. And uh, you don't necessarily have to go to a formal education. You didn't need to sit down and read. And you have to be open to it and, and, and reach out to fellow entrepreneurs. You know, you look at your peers there's bound to be someone and, and uh, most entrepreneurs are more than happy to help others as long as, as long as they're not a competitor. And uh, that's, that's probably was the biggest challenge. And then, and then market uh, and basically brand awareness and acceptance that has been, that's still a struggle now after seven years, we've uh, you know, really pushed heavily to get these, you know, brand ambassadors out there to, to send constant marketing. And I think the reason why it's been so, so successful is mainly because we've picked the right people. You know, you, 
especially in the early on part of a company, you have to pick people who are workhorses. Um, this is not a nine to five position when it's early on. You, you got to get people who who really want it bad. Uh, there's an exchange for that. You know, there has to be, in the end, they have to be paid more or, or have other types of perks. But at the same time, you need people who are intelligent, can move quickly, are adaptable, and like to work as a team. And positive. People have to be very, very positive. Because uh, when you hit a challenge, you can either run for the door, or you can basically put your thinking cap on and get it done. And I've been very fortunate to have a tremendous team uh, surrounding me. And, and I've done my best to let go. Uh, I say that's probably the biggest difficulty for entrepreneurs is to let go. Let people do and uh, an add value to your company and let them take that uh, ownership of that part. Like, you know, have, I have a new marketing manager, does a phenomenal job. Uh, that's his job. That's not my job anymore. <laughs> I have a new engineering manager. Now, I'm an engineer, but it's his job to run the production and do those type of things. You know, we, obviously, I'm there to assist and make sure that they can get their job done and grow the company. But you have to let go. You can't micromanage. You, either you trust your people or you don't. And if you don't trust them, you're not going anywhere. Um, and you still have to look out for the icebergs. You know, that's, that's what you know, vision's all about. And you can't see everything, uh, but you have to sort of plan for those type of things. Well, really good advice, I think. Uh, Kyle Chandler, uh, I appreciate uh, you joining us and uh, an industry that uh, probably doesn't get talked about enough. And so I, I, can, I think I can speak from our listeners that this has been a very uh, educational time and we've uh, uh, learned a lot over the last few minutes. I, I, uh, I appreciate it. I, you know, I really enjoyed it. Kyle Chandler has been our guest. He's the founder and CEO of Chief Technologies. Uh, this has been another edition of Illinois Innovators. I'm your host, Mike Kuhn. Illinois Innovators is a production of Engineering at Illinois. All rights reserved. We invite you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or SoundCloud by searching Engineering at Illinois. We hope you'll help grow our corps of listeners by leaving a favorable rating on iTunes.